welcome. You're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through his word, the Bible. So we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, www.providencechurch.com. If you're getting a church Bible, you will find today's reading on page 195. And we're reading 1 Samuel chapter 15 from verse 10 to the end. Give you some time to get to there. We do this every week before the sermon. We have a passage read from the Bible and then Mikey's going to get up and he preaches to us from that passage. We've been going through the book of Samuel. Um, As Christians, we believe that the word of God is in the Bible, that the Bible is good for us for teaching, for educating us about the Christian life and for comfort uh, and for all instruction that we need as Christians. We believe that it is um, here for a reason and that God gave it to us um, for a purpose. We're picking up at verse 10 today in chapter 15. We see just before verse 10 that Samuel has given an instruction of God to Saul to go and wipe out a neighboring nation. And we pick it up in verse 10. 1 Samuel 15, 10 to 35. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord has said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and then he sent you on a mission, saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. 
Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, the king of Amalekites. Agag came to him in chains, and he thought, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so your mother will be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Hello again. Uh, welcome again. Uh, if you're here with us, especially for for those who are here with us for the first time, it's great that you could join our, our church uh, for Sunday. Uh, what we do here at church is, yeah, we sing songs, we pray to God, we uh, we hear announcements and stuff, but we also spend a big chunk of our time uh, in the Bible. We believe it is God's Word, and the whole Bible is the counsel of God for, for Christians uh, to receive and to, to consider how we can live uh, in this world under our God. And so even the Old Testament... Uh, uh, books like 1 Samuel, it, it, it is challenging. Um, this is a story that happened 3,000 years ago uh, to, to hear this and understand what it means for us. Um, but I hope today will be helpful for us, uh, even if you're new with us, uh, to, to see how this all points us uh, to, to, to Jesus and how we live today as Christians, as God's people, as God's church. So uh, if you have missed out on any talks or anything, if, you, if you're new with us, there's a podcast we have, a website. You can always catch up on those talks as well there. Uh, let's get into it. We're, we're up to like talk five, I think, in this series, halfway through the book, 1 Samuel chapter 15. Uh, let's get into it. I'm going to pray for us and ask God to help us hear his word and understand it. Let's do that now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're a God that speaks to us through it. And we pray today, Lord, even uh, with, with the, the verses in this chapter that might be confronting with uh, the, the, the a passage that might be difficult to understand, help us uh, by your Spirit to give us wisdom. Help us by your Spirit uh, to be convicted of these words. Help us by your Spirit to, to see you uh, in clarity and to, to know you deeper. And, and through that, Lord, help us to be a people that, uh, that live for you uh, and know you as our King. We pray for this in your Son's name. Amen. Uh, just this last week, I came across a, uh, an article online. It was from the Harvard Business Review. And so it sounds legit, Harvard Business Review. Attractive people get unfair advantages at work. AI can help. Now, I know some people who are very attractive here and they've got good jobs, but it spoke about this bias, right, that we have as humans to select attractive people in the workforce uh, and how incorporating artificial intelligence can help avoid our human desire to you know, select people based on their looks rather than their competency or their capability. Uh, it's actually a thing these days. There's articles written about it. It's called the beauty bias or lookism. All right, so you've heard of racism, you've heard of sexism, ageism. There's lookism that exists now. Studies showing that this is a real thing. Artic the article summarizes it and says that 
Physically attractive individuals are more likely to be interviewed for jobs and hired. They are more likely to advance rapidly in their careers through frequent promotions and they earn higher wages than unattractive individuals. It's sad, isn't it? It's very sad. It's a, it's a very unfair. In particular, this bias uh, in the article says it manifests, it manifests itself against obese, awkwardly dressed or tattooed candidates or those who just don't fit the society's dominant aesthetic cr criteria. The article claims, uh, admits that it's hard to test though. It's hard to test sometimes because sometimes attractive people also can be very talented <laughs> and gifted. And it's not just looks per se that gets them the promotion at work. It's not just their looks uh, that, that get, get them the job. But if we do incorporate artificial intelligence in the, pro in the process of hiring, uh, the AI will look at the person's experience, look at the CV essentially, the, uh, the resume, and look at the competencies. And that's will that will partly at least avoid some of that bias. Very interesting, very interesting article. You can have a read of it yourself, but it is depressing, isn't it? And, and I'm not sure if even AI is gonna be the answer to this because when we think about what AI does, yeah, it looks at the facts, it looks at what's on, the, on, on, what's on paper, um, but is it actually gonna be helpful for recruiting people? I think the thing about AI is they can, they can see what's on paper and see what's important, but can they actually know a person? They can see that they're successful, they're experienced, but they, can they know a person's character? Can they know a person's personality, their integrity? If, if AI uh, does do this process of helping uh, people get jobs, uh, I'm guessing their judgment is going to be based merely on just competencies and what looks good on paper. Now, I get it. In a work environment, you want that. Competencies matter. You want people who are competent at their jobs. Uh, and at the same time, um, there are some, you know, we want people who uh, present well as well. But what about the rest of life? I know on dating apps and all that sort of stuff that people are using these days, you know, you're, you're swiping based on looks and their resume, aren't you? What, what their profile is about. But it's really hard to get to know someone through a profile. It's really hard to get to know someone through a resume. You know, what, how do you pick your friends? The people that you spend time with, who you invest in, who you might date or marry? How do you see your family? Is it just based on their good looks and their competencies? Is that how you pick your friends? What they're good at? What if they had a sketchy character? If they had very little integrity? If they had a self-centered personality? Well, it doesn't matter how good looking they are. It doesn't matter how competent they might be. Hopefully we care about their character, wouldn't we? I, I think it's a question we need to ask ourselves too. As Christians, if you're a Christian here, as Christians, when it comes to our relationship with God, what matters to God? What does God desire of us as his people? Is it our competencies? Our success? Does he care about our good looks, our outward appearance? That we keep up some veneer of being a Christian? What actually matters to God? Today's chapter is going to help us see that God sees our hearts. He cares about that. He cares about our intentions and, and, uh, and our integrity and our obedience more than simply our competencies and accomplishments in life. I'm going to unpack what's happening here in this chapter. But firstly, some context. If you've missed talks, you can always yeah, catch up online. Chapter 8, this is what we heard. We heard about uh, the people, Israel, they're the people of God in the Old Testament. Uh, they're dissatisfied with God as their king, so they ask God, please give us a human king to rule over us like the nations around us, right? Ancient Israel, they didn't have a king at this time. They wanted a king to rule over them. That was chapter 8. Uh, that made God very unhappy because God was their king. They're basically rejecting God. Chapter 9 and 10, we hear about how God helps them uh, appoint a king, King Saul. That was, uh, th that was our last 
sermon a couple of weeks ago. We heard about how Saul came to power, the rise of King Saul, and how God's fingerprints were all over that, his enthronement. Now, if you remember Saul 2, chapter 9, I've got this on the screen. What did we hear about with Saul? He was a he was a he was son of a guy called Kish, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. He was a head taller than anyone else. He was tall and he was good looking. That's what we know about him. If lookism is a thing, three thousand years ago it was already happening with Saul. Uh, but that's who God chose, right? And already we're seeing what ha- appears to be at least a good choice. Not only because he's good looking, he's a good choice because over the next few chapters, from eleven to fourteen, uh, he's he's a courageous warrior. He leads people uh, to battle and and achieves victory, accomplishes victory, and and, conquer, and conquering the other nations around them. But over those chapters, you'll also see that Saul, uh, his character comes out, and we see cracks in his character, questionable actions, decisions that lead us to where we are today. Chapter fifteen. Okay, that's where we're at. That's the context. The fall of Saul. This is what we're looking at. Chapter fifteen. Uh, for us to understand what's going to happen, I'm going to give you a bit of a structure. The first one is God's command. First point, God's desire. So his command, God's desire, and God's feelings. That's how we're going to go in today's talk. The first one is the command from God. Uh, I'm going to read from 15 verse 1 to 2, 1 to 3. Uh, let's read this together. Samuel said to Saul, I'm the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Samuel is God's messenger. He's a prophet and priest. He's giving this message to Saul from God um, to, you know, to Saul the king, right? Listen, the, the king is meant to listen and to obey God. The command is go and put to death all the Amalekites, this other tribe, this other nation nearby uh, that, that often attack them, their enemy. Now, this is very heavy, isn't it? You read this and you're like, wow. Uh, the big question is how can God ask for, for, for genocide like this? To kill everyone? To kill even children? Uh, it's it, it, it's, it makes us question because uh, even it, when you go to Psalm, I think the next uh, verse I have on the screen, Psalm 145, you've got this place in the Bible where it says, the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. We've got a good God, and that's what we hear about in the Bible. If you go to church, you always hear God is good. But then you've got this passage here in 1 Samuel 15 where God says, wipe out all the Amalekites from the face of the earth. It's this strong language. And it is horrific, isn't it? It's horrible to imagine. How can God command the death even of, of infants? Uh, and we hear this from our friends, uh, those who don't go to church, that, that God is just some spoiled brat throwing a tantrum, just wants to kill people who don't like him. Or, or, or Christians might even shy away from this. Uh, I've heard Christians say, you know, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. I, I follow the God of the New Testament. But, but let me tell you something. The loving, compassionate God in Psalm 145 and the God of the New Testament is the same God as the Old Testament. He doesn't change. For God to command this, a God whose nature is good and nature who's compassionate, there must be a, a just and good reason for God to command this. Well, we need to understand uh, who God is. We also need to understand why he's commanding this. Here's the thing about the Amalekites. They were a people who did abominable and atrocious acts. Uh, 300 years before this, before this is happening, uh, Israel escaped Egypt. And if you know your Bibles, and that was is in the book of Exodus, they escaped Egypt un, you know, from the slavery under the Pharaoh there. And it was the Amalekites, which we read just in chapter 15, they ambushed them on the way out. 
So they're, they're going, they've got freedom. They're going to the promised land and the Amalekites ambush them and attack them from behind, uh, sparing no one. You know, they, they, they've got this, uh, this, 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 this no mercy mentality, a nation that, that treated others in this way. And, and so from what we do know in the Bible and from what we do know in history, these guys were just really, from the Bible, they seem, they seem evil, don't they? And for many years, 300 years have passed now and God has been patient with them. But now he's commanded Saul to destroy them, be the arm of vengeance for his people. It sounds heavy. But while it might be heavy, God, for God to be good, he needs to be just. He needs to be punishing what is not good. Justice demands punishment. And for the sin of the Amalekites, judgment had come for them. Now, I know that still doesn't sound easy to digest. But as we follow the narrative of the entire Bible from Old Testament to New Testament, the God who uses Israel, who uses this king to destroy the Amalekites, is actually still the same God who, through Jesus, will pass judgment as well. Who, through Jesus, will pass judgment on all the nations. And as hard as this is to hear, there'll be an even greater destruction. A greater destruction that awaits those who live in sin against God. To understand what's happening in the Old Testament with Israel and this, this call to wipe out our whole nation of Amalekites, well, it's to understand that God is a just God. And there will be a time where there will be no more evil. No more uh, people who hurt people. A time where there'll be no more war and greed and selfishness. And that's when judgment will come for all the nations. When we, what we see here is just a small picture of that in the Old Testament. A small picture of, of, of God and his command. And as uncomfortable as that make, makes us uh, feel, this is what judgment looks like upon evil. Judgment on evil, which, which is what's happening here. A, a foretaste, a foreshadow of a great one that will come one day. That's the command that he gives to Saul. Perform this act of justice upon wickedness. What's God's, what's God's desire then? The desire for, for King Saul is that he will obey him, isn't it? You see, Saul doesn't, uh, he does go to war with the Amalekites. And Saul and the Israelite army do wipe out most of the Amalekites, but not all. So let's read from verse 8. I've got this on the screen as well. What happens when Saul goes to war? He, he takes, he Verse 8, he took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Now you'll, you'll discover later on, if you keep reading through the Bible, the, Amalekite, the Amalekites are still around. They haven't all been destroyed. So this is a, a bit of a... Um, uh, a way of saying, you know, generally, you know, generally they've all been destroyed, but they, they show up in chapter 30 of, of, of um, 1 Samuel and at the start of 2 Samuel as well. So they're not all gone. They're still around, but Saul has destroyed most of them, right? Uh, more importantly, though, what Saul does here is clearly disobey God, doesn't he? He takes the king alive, still, who he was meant to kill. He decides not to kill all the animals and cattle, which God told him to kill, but takes them instead as spoils of war. While we might think that he's showing mercy, he's not. He's not showing mercy to these people, uh, to, to the king. He's not showing mercy to these cattle. He's taking the best of them. Uh, he's not feeling sorry for them. He's taking the best. He, he should have spared the weak if he was showing mercy. But what we read is he took the good cattle back home. Blatant disobedience and disregard for God's command. Saul took matters into his own hands. He took matters into his own hands believing he was right and his actions were justified even give, gives himself a pat on the back, puts up a statue of, of himself to commemorate his conquest and accomplishments. That's what happens. He believed what he did was so right, so much so that the next morning, comes back from battle, and he sees Samuel along the road somewhere, 
very happy, very jovial, unaware of what's wrong, what he's done. And he says to Samuel, top of the morning to you, Samuel. And, it, and he says, the he doesn't say that. He says, verse 13, the Lord bless you. The Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. Right? That's in verse 13. He's just so, like there's a sense, he's just so excited to see Samuel. I imagine it's really early in the morning. Samuel just woke up. He's groggy. And, and, you know, he's super chirpy in the morning. Hey, morning, Samuel. You know, there's people who go on park runs. They're just really happy in the mornings. And they run at 7 a.m. They, they, you know, those people, like this is Saul. He's at the top of the morning. Are you, are you having a good morning, Samuel? Hi, hi. Samuel, the night before, was, we're told he was angry. He was crying out to God the whole night. It just seems like Saul has no clue what he's just done. Samuel proceeds to ask him, why do I hear the sound of cattle? The cattle that you were meant to destroy. And Saul justifies his actions. He says, well, they're the best ones. We brought them back. We brought them back because we can use them for sacrifices to God. Wouldn't that be so good? Don't worry, we destroyed everything else. And so he's thinking, oh, I haven't done anything wrong. What I've done is a good thing. He's justifying his actions. Even though he's disobeyed God, he's saying, oh, well, you know, I did it to do good, right? It's like, it's like, oh, I just robbed the bank, but hey, you know, I'm using the money to give to church. Yeah, like, don't worry about it. It's all good. Samuel says, nah, nah that's, not, that's not what God asked of you, though. You were meant to destroy everything. Why did you not obey God? Now, Saul gets a bit defensive. He gets a bit uncomfortable. He replies, no, I, I did obey God, though. I destroyed everything. But then he, he changes his tune, doesn't he? But, but it wasn't me that took the cattle back. It was, it was the soldiers. The soldiers brought the sheep and cattle back as plunder for sacrifice. And there's this little moment here, right? If you, if you, if you meditate on this a bit, you, you read this and you're like, there's this moment where Saul sort of realizes his mistake. It, it dawns on him that he's exposed and he starts clutching at straws, you know? He hopes to find excuses for his actions. That, that moment when you feel shame, and so you look around and you try to shift the blame onto someone or something else. It's, it's like I got the picture in my head of, of the kid who's got you know, chocolate smeared all over his face and his parents come in and say, who ate the chocolate? And the kid panics and says, you know, his younger baby sister or the pet dog, shifting the blame to get out of trouble. And Saul realizes his mistake. Verse 21, he shifts the blame onto his own soldiers and says it was them. Good looking people, they can get away with anything. <laughs> but his face is smeared all over with chocolate. It's cowardly, isn't it? And what kind of king is this? I, I'd want my king to be a man with, with honor and responsibility, who has integrity, who takes ownership of his actions, even his mistakes. I mean, I'd want that in any man, by the way. But, you know, someone's got to, you know, like, there's something wrong here, isn't there? Rather than take responsibility in repentance, he shifts the blame to save face instead. Rather than being a man of integrity, we, see, we really see the filth of his pride and arrogance on display. Yes, this mighty warrior king is courageous and strong, leading his armies to victory. He's competent. And like what every other nation would do at the time, ancient nation, he takes home the plunder, takes home the, 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 the king alive as a prisoner to showcase his might and power over the enemy. On the, on the externals, looking at the externals, Saul has done what any ancient conquering nation would do. But that's not what God asked for, was it? Saul's actions was in fact a rebellion and rejection of God's command, thinking he knows better than God. And what has been exposed to us is Saul's sin. Yes, on the surface, competent and successful, but God sees past the external and sees his arrogant heart instead. God desires obedience. 
In verse 22, this is how we know that. Verse 22, it says, I've got it on the screen, but, but Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. You see what's at the heart of this passage? Saul's sin, his disobedience. God would have been far more pleased with his obedience than with the fat cattle he brought home. Does God need that? God has everything. I mean, he's God. What he's, uh, what he's requested of Saul isn't more stuff. Uh, you know, I think about, uh, you know, you might have a friend who just has everything, you know, you're that friend who just doesn't need anything. He's just, says, he, he's just wealthy, has everything, uh, so he doesn't need more stuff. But what do you get him? What do you get that friend, that him or her, uh, if, he's got, if he or she has everything already? Surely all they want from you is just to be their friend, a loyal friend. God here, he doesn't need more stuff. He owns the world. He owns all the cattle, all, all, the, all the sheep. But what he wants is a heart of obedience, a heart of loyalty from the one who he has appointed as king. The king who was meant to be a person who was to point the people to God's commands, to be a model of that to the people, a role model of that. He was to govern the people, pointing them to God as the true and ultimate king. He was just the vice regent, right? He was just the, the second in charge. But this man Saul is far from that type of king God desired. Saul has even distanced himself from God. To the point where, interestingly, if you uh, read this chapter a couple of times, you'll, you'll pick this up. Saul refers to God who, uh, as who? Not as his God, but as Samuel's God. So I've got an example. Verse 30, it says this. Saul, he's trying to save face, right? He says, I've sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people, before Israel. So he's trying to save face here. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. Isn't that interesting? Because God is his God too. But his tune has changed here in chapter 15. He's become distant from God. He calls God Samuel's God, not his own. Saul has not only disobeyed God and not listened to his commands, his word, but now he's been distanced from God. And with the sin of Saul, we meet the God who feels. Twice in this passage, from verse 10 to 35, that Andy read for us, we heard it twice that God regrets making Saul king. Verse 10, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. On the screen, verse 10, uh, I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again. Verse 35, uh, though Samuel mourned for him and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. We hear that word regret and, and, and we know that feeling, don't we? Regret is a feeling. We, we feel regrets when we make mistakes, when people uh, are hurt from the things we've done, when we wish we made a different choice in life. We feel regret, don't we? Um, this feeling is, is so real for me when I go out to eat. <laughs> people if you go out to, with me to eat in restaurants. Uh, before I order food from them, I spend ages looking at all the options. I try to you know, do the pros and cons, advantages and disadvantages, what, what I'm going to eat tonight. Right? It's, it's, it's an anxiety issue, I think. But, you know, so I re I'm looking at the menu, and, and I say, everyone order first. I'll order last, so then I'm ordering under pressure, because that's just the easiest way. And so I order under pressure, and I just decided last, you know, in the last second what I want. The food comes out. It's placed in front of me, and I look at it, and I'm just like, and I look at your food, and I'm just like, oh, man, I should have ordered that. Every time, every time, regrets. Huge regrets, right? Buys remorse, whatever it is. The grief of making the wrong choice. And we hear about that with God here. His choice of making Saul king. 
uh, there's a feeling of regret and grief and sadness that this man who was called to lead a nation instead is puffed up with pride and arrogance, disobedient to the God who gave him that authority in the first place. Now here's the difficulty with this. Why would God feel regret or change his mind about Saul when he himself should already know the outcome? If he's God, he knows everything. If he's God, he's sovereign, he's in control. So far in 1 Samuel, we heard about how he's so in control, he, he opens the womb of a barren woman like Hannah in chapter 1. And then in chapter 9 and 10, we hear about how he, in providence, leads uh, this, this donkey farmer, Saul, to be a king over a kingdom. Right? This, God knows the outcomes. God is in control. He's sovereign. He's in control of past, present, future, and, and time is within his control. The God we worship is the one who's unchanging and unmovable. Samuel says it actually in, uh, in this passage. In the same passage from 10 to 35, in 28 29, it says, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you, he's torn us all, and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he's not a human being that he should change his mind. All right, so you've got these two these verses in the same passage, in the same chapter. God is God, He's not fickle. He's not swaying back and forth with his decisions like I am at a restaurant trying to choose what to eat. He doesn't have buyer's remorse. Yet we're told he feels something. This is what I want us to understand today. Sometimes the Bible describes God with human parts and human emotions. So we as humans know how to respond to him. So we know how to interact with him. It's a way of relating to God. And so the Bible uses this language Sometimes you might have heard passage, uh, passages in the Bible like God stretches out his hand or his face shine upon you or his eyes are on the land. Right. But is that literal? Does he have actual eyes like ours, hands like us? What, what do you imagine in your mind? The language in the Bible is often employed, not literally, but to, to describe God's body parts, um, to give him human characteristics to help us understand him better, to help us relate to him easier. Uh, I've, got, I've got a big word to teach you guys today. Uh, the big word of the day is this one, anthropomorphism, right? And it's this idea, isn't it, of giving human characteristics to God to relate to him. You can Google that later and find out more about this anthropomorphism. It's, it's, it's giving human characteristics to God for us to be able to relate to him. God isn't some robot. He's not some artificial intelligence that is just you know, controlling the earth like, you know, and is indifferent, doesn't have feelings to what's going on in the world. We hear about a God who does have feelings. A God who, has, who feels grief and sadness when he looks upon our world when he looks upon sin and disobedience and injustice and that's what's going on here he's a god who feels regret yes he, he never changes he has a plan but he looks upon sin and he feels sadness and grief you know the the bible gives him a lot of emotion the lord our god is merciful and gracious you might have heard that slow to anger abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness he is a patient god he is slow to anger he has so much love for his people and he always shows them overwhelming mercy. But he will not and cannot just let sin slide either if he's to be holy and just. And so here in our chapter, we hear about Saul being punished for his sin. So much so that his throne will be taken away from him. And God has already planned another to take him. It's going to be King David, spoiler alert. But he'll, King David will, come, will rise up and he'll be one that God chooses to replace Saul. 
But in the process, God is still going to grieve over that reality. He grieves over sin. When we read chapter 15, we hear about a king called Saul who's just a little bit of a disappointment, isn't he? Yes, he's good looking. Yes, he's a strong warrior. But the more power and the greater his position becomes, the more pride and arrogance and self-centeredness is exposed. And while it might read like, like a story about a king who's dethroned, it really is a story about our humanity, isn't it? Don't we see Saul in, in all of us? Don't we see him? Don't, don't, does, doesn't he represent you and I? Uh, I know as much as I hear God's commands for me, I so easily justify my actions that are often at times disobedient to his word, don't you? Don't you tiptoe sometimes around sin, flirt with sin, thinking that you know better than God? Thinking that you're stronger than any temptation can throw at you? That you're smarter than that, more competent than the average person, so that there's no way you'll fall into sin? When at the same time, our hearts are filled with pride and arrogance and vanity and greed. But we shrug it off. We justify it, thinking we know better than God. You know, sin isn't, isn't just doing wrong things. I think it's, that's a mistake that people make. Sin is just doing bad things. Uh, if you're not a Christian here today and you're still learning, I want you to understand that sin itself is actually the relationship breakdown that we have with God when we aren't living for Him, but rather living for ourselves which we all have committed, me included. This isn't just the issue with Saul, is it? But what we see with him is he's not giving glory to God. He's giving glory to himself. His reputation, his status, a monument in his name. It's a trap that we all fall into as well. When we're aware of our sin, we shrug it off. We say, it'll be fine. It's, it's all right. I'll do better next time. Then not take any actual action to kill it off or find accountability or find help or pray about it. We don't actually feel remorse or move towards repentance. We don't feel regret. Friends, we must take our sin seriously. We must look at our hearts. We must consider in our lives, what errors am I just disobeying God? Justifying it, shrugging it off. Then we must kill it. We can't let sin slide like Saul has here. And while it might be easy for us to think this is someone else's problem, we need to take a long look at our own hearts. For, for those who, who, who show up to church every week, who take the title Christian, we say we're a child of God. And, and we show people our involvement at church, how we serve the poor, we give money to charity. We know all the answers to the Bible study questions. We make sacrifices with our time, resources. And on appearance, in the externals, it very much looks like we're competent Christians who are doing all the right things, successful by church standards. Yet while all that might be good, we also have a heart of disobedience. That deep down we care more for our own glory than God's. That our actions are more motivi motivated by our self-centeredness than by love for God and love for others. And that's when pride blinds us and our ambition. So that's not about God, it's about us. Friends, we all need to take a look at ourselves. Sin is always creeping at the door. Aren't we all a little bit like Saul at times? Because when I read this account, I think I would have done the same thing. It's time to remove that false Christian veneer that shows we have it all together. As if competency and success is what makes us Christians. And to be a Christian is to admit that we have flaws. We are at times weak, that we are human, that we don't always have it together, and we need a Savior. It's okay to fail. Failure doesn't define you. In fact, we need to start with acknowledging our failures at times. Because only then do we acknowledge that we need someone 
who's greater than us, who can save us from the sin that we can't save ourselves from. Friends, that's where humble obedience begins. That's where character is formed. And character will always trump competency in God's economy. Being honest with ourselves, responsible, owning our actions and our intentions, moving towards repentance and obedience. Now, as much as we want to, we will never do this perfectly. It's hard. Honestly, I think it's really hard. Yet God knows very well this. He knows this very well. He gives us the Holy Spirit to help us. And he provides a solution for us in the person of Jesus. You see, Saul was a flawed king and the king's after him too. We can't save ourselves from that. But we can look to the one, our Savior Jesus, who did perfectly trust and obey God on our behalf. Who even though he felt the pressure, the temptation, even though he could have saved face by flexing and wielding his power, he could have escaped all the, all the suffering, he, but he chose to trust and obey God to the point where it led him to humiliation, shame, suffering, and death on a cross. The son of Jesus came to die on the cross so he could take the full judgment and punishment that was reserved for our sin and disobedience. Justice was performed, but not on us. It was performed on the innocent Lord Jesus. You know, Romans 3.26 says this about what Jesus has accomplished for us. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just, so judgment is done, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus so that we could be justified too, so that we could be redeemed and saved. When we trust in Jesus and ourselves, strive to obey him in worship. When we trust and obey, as hard as that can be at times, we can know that God will not forsake us. He won't abandon us like he has Saul. We have salvation through Jesus, our representative. So as a response, enjoying gratitude, may we be a people not focused on our success, a people not focused on our competencies or vanity, but striving instead to trust and obey him to please the God who loved and saved us when we were distant from him. Let's pray for that. Father, thank you for King Jesus who in his perfect obedience died for us so that we could know you and, and your love for us, so we could have a relationship with you that had been broken due to our disobedience and sin. Uh, thank you for Jesus. We, we, we pray that, that by, the, by the gift of your Holy Spirit, you'll help us to strive for a life of repentance and obedience, one that isn't about us, isn't about simply appearances and how competent we are, but a life that points to your glory. Help us to live with such integrity that Jesus is glorified through us as your church. And it's, in, it's for his glory. And in, in his name we pray. Amen.